And good morning. Good to see you all here. Uh, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, and pastor here at Lower Town, and uh, glad you're able to make it in this nice, chilly fall morning. Um, those of you who don't know a lot about this neighborhood and community, it's a, it's a huge artist community, and uh, actually currently right now is the last day of the St. Paul Art Crawl. Um, and so after the service, if you're interested, feel free to just, I mean, almost every building, uh, if you just walk straight south of here, just literally one block over right across the street from the Buttered Tin, there's a, a building there called Creator's Space or Creator's Cup as uh, the coffee shop there. And they'll be full of artists uh, displaying art, just kind of a, a public art gallery. Um, there's even a guy, Casey, who uh, attends here. He's got his art in one of the studios. And so uh, if you walk around, and, and uh, it'd be really cool to just be able to. We used to host uh, artists here. Uh, in this building, and we'd have two-by-fours and kind of turn this place into an art gallery. But obviously, it goes through Sunday, and it was, just, it was just a lot of weird work to try to get all that out and then try to go outside. It, was just, it just wasn't uh, tangible. But it'd be kind of great for us to be able to go into the neighborhood and community and, and uh, meet some people who, who are artists and appreciate their art um, and that kind of, uh, that kind of thing. Um, we are in week five of uh, going through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, so we've just kind of been slowly going through this. I'm going to kind of skip the recap this morning, but I really just want to uh, look at how Nehemiah is, is a man of God, uh, an Old Testament prophet, and, and almost every single chapter, there's, he has a prayer that he is giving, that he's praying to God to give him strength, to help him. He's uh, uh, in conflict, not in conflict, but he's, he's going face-to-face with the king where there could be some conflict. He has some neighbors that really don't like him. And that's kind of where we're picking up the story, where he is trying to rebuild the walls of of Jerusalem, of his hometown, uh, being a native to uh, Jerusalem as an Israelite. And so he's going back, and he's building the walls. And we're going to see this uh, next narrative and another short little prayer that Nehemiah is going to give uh, in this this passage that we're going to look at in in chapter 5. before I get there, though, I want to look at um, really something that he's going to struggle with, and, and, is, and I, think, I think every single person in this room has at one point struggled with, um, and that is the area of gossip. And, and, and gossip can be one of those things where either we're the one gossiping um, or we've been gossiped about. And, and I was racking my brain thinking about some stupid, silly story about, you know, when I've been gossiped about. And I thought, no, it's stupid and it's silly. And there's nothing stupid and silly about gossip. Now, when you're really the recipient of gossip, it's, it's terrible, right? It's, it's one of the worst places to be in if somebody thinks something ill of you and, and either it's completely not true. And even if it is true, it's none of that person's business. And it's really hurtful. Uh, and, 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 and hateful and just evil. And so that's going to happen to Nehemiah, but I, I want to give us, uh, really, I, I don't do this a whole lot, but I want to give us some practical steps when it comes to gossip. And, and even just yesterday, I was guilty of this. I'm talking with my wife, and all of a sudden I'm going, whoa, 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 okay, see, I shouldn't be, I'm preaching on this tomorrow. I need to shut my mouth right now, right? This, it's just, it, it, it comes up. So I want to talk about this. And so the title of this is A Prayer of Perseverance, and, and I had another title, and then, but really what I want to be focusing on, really throughout the whole narrative of this, and even into, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the New Testament today, of looking at this idea of gossip. And, and I think a subcategory of that is bullying. Um, I think that, that it, 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 yes, we can look at bullying and say, man, that's, that's bad, people shouldn't do that. Yeah, of course not. But I, I think the biblical word for it is gossip. 
Um, and so I want to look at that, looking at Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, excuse me, it's Nehemiah chapter 6, 1 through 13. I don't know why I have, that was last week's uh, passage. So Nehemiah chapter 6, 1 through 13. All I'm going to do is just going to read. I'm just going to read through this text um, and then make a couple points uh, when, when I go back, but, but really just looking at this narrative, kind of the next chapter of the story and where we're at. So when word came to Sambalat, uh, Tobiah, uh, Gershom, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, all right, so these are, the, these are the, the, the neighbors of the surrounding area. They have a standing army. Uh, they're allies together, and they're going against Jerusalem. They're going back to the king of Persia, uh, Artaxerxes I, saying, hey, all these, they're, they're rebuilding their walls. They're going to commit treason. They're not going to pay their taxes, and, and we shouldn't let them do that. And so all this is, is going on. And in verse 2, Sambalat and Gershom sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Right now, if somebody tells you, let's go to a city called Ono, just say no. This doesn't sound like a good idea, right? His enemies are saying, let's, hey, let's, let's meet together, right? How about you leave the safety of your new gates and your walls? And how about you come out here and with us? I promise everything will be okay, right? Just meet us in the plains of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop? Will I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. All right, take a hint, guys. I'm not going out there. Verse 5, then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and his hand was on an unsealed letter which was written. And so the next slide will read this letter, but we got to think about what's, what's going on here. Well, you talk about like gossip going on. We're going to read this letter, but think about the, why, why would it be unsealed, right? There, there's, a, there's a reason for that. that when, when a king or anybody would, would seal a letter, then the only person who was able to read that letter would be the person that it was intended for. And if it was broken, then it, then it wouldn't become true if it was a law or whatever. It had to be remained sealed and private. And so there's a reason why this is unsealed, whether it's purposefully broken or whether it never was sealed in the first place. So as this letter is going around the community, anyone can read it. Anyone and everybody, because I would, right? I mean, if you get some, come on, if you get somebody else's mail, right, and it's open, you're like, well, it's in my mailbox. I mean, might as well just see what's in. Just kidding, that's illegal. Don't do that, right? But it's, but it's tempting, right, to be able to just I don't know, read what's in this. And so that's what's going on. Okay, so here's the, the content then of this letter. It is reported among the nations, and Gershom says it is true, or Gershom says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. All right, there's, so here's this propaganda message that he's been building all along. First, it was just among him and his, and his cronies, and now it's gone back to the Jews, and then now even more so, it's specifically attacking Nehemiah. You're going uh, to rebuild this wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you, Nehemiah, are about to become their king, and you have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. And this is the proclamation that his prophets supposedly are saying. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, Artaxerxes I, the great. So come, 
let us meet together. All right, this is the slander. This is the, the gossip that's being spread around about Nehemiah. And then he says this. This is his response. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening, all right? You are just making it up out of your own head, all right? You're just making this up. They, uh, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will become, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. That's it, that's his prayer. And one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Delilah, the son of Mechabel, who was shut in at his home, and he said, or he's some kind of a prophet, if you will, and he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us choose the temple doors, oh, sorry, let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you, and by night they are coming to kill you, okay? So he's giving some, some warning, hey, maybe we should retreat, maybe we should just go into the temple, close the doors, let's hide, because these people are coming to kill you. And he said, but I said, should a man like me run away? Okay, and he's not just saying like, uh, you know, hey, look at me, I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't flee. He's saying, I, I'm, I, I've been given, I've been commissioned by God to complete this mission of rebuilding the wall. There's nothing that I have to fear because God is the one who's telling me to do this. Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. All right, so, so here it is, it's more gossip and slander of trying to convince Nehemiah that he should retreat, that he should run away. And then he finds out that this prophet, this man of God was a hired hand. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, by not obeying the command of God to rebuild the wall and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. All right, so he's got two opposite things. Hey, I want you to leave the city. I want you to come out here so we can plot to kill you, or I want you to run away and hide. And he says, no, I need to keep doing the work that God has called me to do. So that's the passage. And I'm not going to go through all this verse by verse, maybe like I have done in the weeks past, but I want to I specifically look at this topic of gossip and just simply blatantly say this, that gossip is a sin. Now, we can go back to Exodus. We can go back to, to, the, to the Ten Commandments. Go back to the Big Ten, and where it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Where it is against God's command to say something about somebody that is wrong. And we'd say, well, man, gossip, though, am I really lying? I'm not really, like, lying about them. I'm telling the truth about them. Just going behind their back and saying it, right? But it's still bearing false witness, even if it's true, because it's none of that other person's business. I found a study this week from um, UC Riverside. I don't know where that is or, or what it is, uh, but it's a university somewhere of Riverside. Uh, but they apparently did a large study on gossip, okay? Uh, and, and, and this was just a quote that I found, and it is the first ever study to dig deep into uh, who gossips the most, what topics they gossip about, and how often people gossip. 52 minutes a day on average. Now, as I kept, I was like, man, that seems like, that seems like really, oh, that seems like a lot, okay? That just seems like, like 52 minutes. I'm only awake for 12 of those hours, so I'm not sure how I fit in a whole hour worth of gossiping. And then I realized that it's actually talking about positive and, and is 12 not a lot? 
I see a lot of people like, he's only awake for 12 hours. Okay, oh yeah, 12 hours. Yeah, I don't get 12 hours of sleep. Uh, I was not a math major. Uh, I remember in college when I finally took college math as a freshman and I was done with it. I celebrated uh, to the end of the world. That was, uh, that was a great day, um, as you can tell. Okay, so 52 minutes. I know that's not an hour. Okay, I do know that one. Um, <laughs> Almost an hour, all right? And so we look at this though and say, I don't, it just didn't seem right. But as I was looking at it though, and I kept reading the article, um, then again, I don't know who wrote it, but, but they were talking about the idea of uh, gossip. Um, if we take the definition of gossip is talking about anybody that's not to their face. All right, so Angela and I, we just started watching The Masked Singer, if uh, you know what that is. And so, so if we're sitting there talking about, you know, T-Pain, right? They're saying that's gossip, right? Because T-Pain's not there in my presence. I'm not talking to T-Pain. I don't think that, to me, that's not gossip, right? To me, gossip is a negative aspect of, of, of throwing somebody under the bus when they don't even realize the bus is there, right? Because if nobody has ever, if somebody says, man, uh, you know, if, if my boss comes to me and says, hey, I heard you did this really good thing in this project that you did, who, got, who gossiped, right? Who was it? Who did, no, it's usually, if it's a negative thing, I think that's how we view gossip, and I think that's how Scripture views gossip, specifically when we look at the Proverbs. I love how the Proverbs put this. Uh, it's, such, it's so poetic. It says in Proverbs 16, 28, a perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. I can guarantee there are people in this room, well, I can guarantee it because I'm one of them, that you've lost friends, that friendships have been broken over gossip, over some stupid little thing, and maybe it was a little thing, but because it wasn't handled the right way, it hurts and it cuts deep and it's really hard to move on from that and then to gain trust with that individual again. Proverbs again, again, the poetry here is just, man, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. I, that, I mean, that is the definition of gossip, even though it uses gossip in the definition. That's what it, it goes in, it, whether it is to the person who is being gossiped about, right? That it, it goes in deep and it stays there and you can feel it. And also to the people that are being told about this gossip, either to the listener or to the victim. Found another individual who does study specifically on, on relationships. You can't see her name on there. It's Lisa Jarde. Um, and she does this whole thing on relationships. And this is, this is a quote from her. And she says this, triangulation is a toxic, toxic form of gossip that contaminates everyone involved. Triangulation is simply where you have a, a party A and then party B is the one. So there's, there's some kind of beef in between them. And instead of this individual specifically going to that person for whatever reason, maybe it's my boss, maybe, maybe it's somebody of a different gender, right? And so there's just something, it's just something's awkward or inappropriate here. And so instead of going to that individual, we go to somebody else. We go to party C. And what it's saying here is that triangulation is a toxic form of gossip that contaminates everyone involved because it also contaminates the individual who's just the innocent bystander, who just happens to have ears and you happen to talk to them. Because now, guess what? Their opinion of person B is damaged. 
Everything there has been hurt when, when we gossip and when we triangulate. Um, uh, maybe a, a crass way to talk about this, if you'll forgive me, but I think it paints the picture, is that a lot of times when, when, when somebody sees the muck, right, there's a toilet full of junk, right? And so instead of going and dealing with it and just flushing the toilet, we go to somebody else who say, man, this toilet is disgusting. And then guess what? We might even behind their back then flush the toilet. And then guess what? This person back here doesn't even know the toilet's flushed. And they're sitting there thinking that person's horrible. And well, they're, they're fine now. They're cool. It's, it's a terrible, terrible thing of triangulation. It's actually um, based on uh, uh, hearsay that I've heard in my life uh, that it's actually one of the number one reasons in the corporate world why people get fired. It's because, of tri- it's because of this kind of thing, instead of dealing with it the way that we ought to. And as I was reading this, uh, this woman's uh, article even more about this, um, her whole idea and where she's coming from is about relationships. Right? So if you are in any kind of relationship, right, whether that be with uh, parents, siblings, in-laws, spouse, friends, coworkers, kids, this, the, we struggle with this. It is so easy to just think, I'm just talking. I just, I just need to get this off of my chest. I want to see what uh, specifically does the Bible have to say about this. I want to look at Matthew Chapter 18, this is Jesus talking, and he, said, he is giving us, he's giving the church instruction on how to deal with this, with triangulation. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. I mean, that's literally the opposite of gossip. How do you stop gossiping? How do you stop triangulation? Right there. Matthew 18, 15, if they sin against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. That you need to go to them, you need to talk to them and say, hey, this thing happened. And you know what? They might even be in a position where they don't even realize they said something or did something wrong that hurt you. That happens all the time, at least, at least in my marriage. Maybe you're perfect, okay? There's a lot of times where I gotta, I gotta go to my wife and say, hey, you, you did this thing the other day and I, I don't know if it was wrong, but I'm just having a, I'm just having a hard time with this and I, don't, and I don't know why. Can we just... Talk about this rather than going to my friends or my in-laws, or not my, like her parents, like your daughter, man, she's, that's not what I mean. So then they continue though. He says this, Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, then you have won them over. There's nothing, nothing, we're good here. Everything's okay. It may be hard. It may be difficult to rebuild trust and to forgive, but that's what we're called to do. And so then when we go to that individual, and if they don't listen, then you take one or two others along so that uh, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then we go and we say, hey, okay, now, hey, I, I want you to know I went to them first and they're denying that it ever happened, or they're saying they're, that they're, they're right. I just, I just need, to, I need you to come with me as I talk to them. Not just, let's just stay here in my house, let's bicker, let's complain about that person that we all hate. No, let's all together go with them. That is a completely different loving way rather than triangulation and bullying and bitterness and gossip. In verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, tell it to the leadership, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Because what Jesus is saying here is that that individual, after they've been confronted three times, this is blatant, unrepentant sin. 
That if somebody is saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, and these individuals are coming and saying, hey, you, you've sinned against this person. You need to forgive them. You need to, whatever it may be. And they say, no, I'm not doing that. I can't stand that person. I will never forgive them. That's where we can say, then we can't forgive you. And we need to treat you as somebody who doesn't even believe these things. We need to act as if you don't actually follow Jesus. And then what do we need to do? Let's look at Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah does exactly that, right? He goes and he sends him specifically this reply. He doesn't go back with the same tactics. I'm going to make my own propaganda campaign. I'm going to have an open letter go around all of his buddies and all of his friends. Right? He doesn't do that. He goes directly to that individual, to that person, which is exactly opposite of, when, of what Sam Ballot did. But then he prays. God, strengthen Strengthen my hands. And this could very well be a physical strengthening, but I don't think it is. I think it's more than that. I think it's an emotional weariness of this propaganda campaign that is just meant to beat Nehemiah and the Israelites down. And he's saying, strengthen me, God. I need you. I need your hand. I need your help in this moment. And he prays. I want to just briefly talk about the chronological order of the Bible. I know it sounds really out of place, but it has a purpose here, so just bear with me. Um, this is a graph. I know you, you probably can't, can't read that, um, but when we, when we look at our Old Testament, it's, it's not in chronological order, all right? It's not, uh, if you go from Genesis to, to this stupid joke, but you have to say it every time, the Italian prophet Malachi. Uh, it's, it's, okay, when you go to Malachi, okay, so from Genesis to Malachi, they're not, you don't just read them in sequential order and then, and then everything is the same. It's not how, how the Bible is laid out. So you have um, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Job uh, is written right around in that same time, if not even pre-Genesis. Um, and then you have Judges and Ruth, our contemporaries. You have First and Second Samuel with Amos and Hosea. Uh, and then you have First and Second Chronicles. Uh, and you have all the uh, a lot of prophets right there in that time. And you get to Second Kings and a lot of other prophets. And then you have exile, that kind of half crescent moon looking thing. There is seventy years of exile um, with Daniel and Ezekiel, and now it's coming back from exile, which is where we are: Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, and Esther. And so, and then you have these other books of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So Nehemiah, when you look at the timeline, is actually one of the last books written in the Old Testament chronologically, even though it's not necessarily the last book that we have, okay? Here's why I point this out, because I want to take a closer look at the gossip around Nehemiah. I want to look at specifically what was said to Nehemiah or about Nehemiah in that letter. It says, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews, Nehemiah, you and the, and the Jews are plotting a revolt, and therefore you are building a wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. Nehemiah, you are claiming to be the king of the Jews. And you have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem that you are this one that has been prophesied about for so long. There is a king in Judah. There is a new king of the Jews. I am that promised, prophesied Messiah. Is there any validity to this? Maybe, 
right? Let's put ourselves back in this whole gossip triangle here. Maybe Sam Ballot actually believed that to be true. Sam Ballot actually believed that Nehemiah was setting himself up to be the king of the Jews and then to proclaim that he is the Messiah. Maybe he really believed that. But if he just would have went and talked to him, this all would have been taken care of. I don't think that was Sam Ballot's excuse. I don't think that he was actually doing this. And instead, he enters into triangulation, enters into gossip. So I want to look at what, what could have been maybe the motivation for Sam Ballot to send this. Was there something that he could have taken on from that happened previously in the Jewish Bible that maybe he's saying, oh, here we go. Here's some good propaganda campaign here. We can make it look like Nehemiah is claiming to be the Messiah. So this promise that is made all the way back in what we would call the, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with King David, is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. It says, And Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. So here we have, again, God promising, based on his own deity, that he's going to do this, that he's going to establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, this is God talking to King David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And so there was a, a, a well-known aspect of the of the. Of the uh, of uh, David and who the Messiah was going to be, that he was going to be a descendant of David. And so there's not a whole lot of, of um, uh, we don't have the uh, genealogies of Nehemiah. So I don't know if he ever really claimed to be uh, a flesh and blood of David, but it was possible, uh, but we just don't know. And so it's all speculative. But either way, the, the, the accusation was there. So it's saying some descendant of David, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This says, can't just be Solomon, David's son, who actually builds a temple, because I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. There is no throne that's still around in Israel's name. Verse 14, I will be his father. Okay, God, Yahweh, is saying, I will be his father, and he will be my son and when he does wrong, I will punish him what with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, the first king of Israel. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever." So this is written hundreds of years before Nehemiah is on the scene. And then just after this, we have the other minor prophet, Amos, who writes this, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter, right? This is a prophet looking forward to the day when the Messiah is going to take over this throne. He's looking forward to this day when the king of kings, when the actual Messiah and true descendant of David will restore this. I will repair its broken walls. I will restore its ruins. Kind of sounds like Nehemiah. I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares Yahweh, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the reaper 
will be overtaken by the plowman, the planter, by the one treading the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. God is saying here, something's going to happen, and everything's going to be made new. And yet, these are the passages that most likely help the propaganda campaign to say, maybe Nehemiah is actually claiming to do these things. So could this be Nehemiah? Well, I think we see from Scripture that the answer is no. It's not. And as we get to this promise that was made all the way back in 2 Samuel, we can see the promise was kept in Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew, we're not going to go into this, gives this huge genealogy of how Jesus is actually a descendant of King David. And so we get to this king of the Jews, this theme that they were, that Sambalat was arguing against or to Nehemiah. He's saying, this is actually now happening. 400 years after Nehemiah, now it's happening. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, right, the, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod whose title was the king of the Jews, heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, one who will shepherd my people, Israel. There's going to be something different about this kingdom. So when is it established? Where? How? How is this going to be the throne that will be established forever? Something's different about it. So as we fast forward in the timeline, and Jesus now a, a grown man, in chapter, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, he says, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And in the very next verse, the next phrase, what we see, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her with her sons, this is James and John, two beloved disciples of Jesus, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Sit in a position of power and authority, but she's thinking, her disciples are thinking a literal physical kingdom with a throne, and we're going to take over this land. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will. You, you will indeed drink from my cup. What is this cup? As it looks at this cup is suffering and death. That James is going to be the, the first uh, a disciple to be martyred, to be murdered by the sword. John, according to church history, thousands of years of church history, there's not any extra uh, church history books that would say this, but John was actually, they attempted to murder him and, and martyr him by throwing him into a boiling pot of oil, and apparently it didn't take. 
So they took him out. You can imagine the, the scars he would have and lived the rest of his life as a slave on the island of Patmos, and that part is true. And he lived as an old man dying as a slave to his masters in Rome. He says, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. Something different about this kingdom. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And then Jesus, this is just skipping forward, Jesus with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup, may this suffering, may this death be taken from me. And yet, not as I will, but as you will. I know I'm going to die, but let your will be done. So when we look at Jesus, even when his death, listen to this, when his death is the direct result of gossip and triangulation, he says, Father, I want your will to be done. So let's look at this triangulation. He, said, he says this three times. We're going to look at this. You said so. In other words, you, you have said it. You said so. This isn't just like a, a passive-aggressive way to say um, yes or maybe no. I'm not really sure. This is a way to say you said it because you know it's true. In your heart of hearts, you know who I am. So let's look at this triangulation. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with his 12. He's having a Passover meal. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Then they were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. And the son of man will go just as has been written about but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him to have not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. Judas, you, you know who you are. Maybe we could have dealt with this. Maybe instead of going behind my back to the religious leaders and selling your soul for 30 pieces of silver, we could have talked about this. And again, this accusation of blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. And they get all their friends and other people to say, yeah, he's a bad guy. He's, he's not God. Then they finally come to him. And they arrest him and they ask, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, your dad, by the way, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. And again, he says, you have said so. You know this to be true. You know who I am. And again, the gossip and triangulation about being a king. This is why he was arrested. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And again, he says to him, you have said so. You know who I am. He's not defensive. 
But he talks to the offending party calmly, respectfully, and then he dies at their hands. And the soldiers also came up and they mocked him and they offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And Jesus dies and he's buried in a tomb, but he doesn't stay there. He rises from the dead and his throne is and will be established forever. We read this in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb of the Messiah, his throne. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Come, Lord Jesus, like, give us those leaves. Just, like, those leaves, I don't know what that means, but I want those leaves to heal these nations. And no longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God is their light. And they, the Father and the Son, will reign forever and ever. You see, Jesus lived and died and rose again in part so that we would not gossip. So that we wouldn't be guilty of that sin of triangulation and bullying and gossiping so that we can give him the glory. The one who died as a result of gossip. He died so that we could have victory over that sin. So gospel application, are you guilty of triangulation or gossip? I, I'm, I don't play Holy Spirit a whole lot in your lives. The answer is yes. Okay, you're, you're guilty of this. You don't know. Yes, I know you. As a human being, as a fallen sinner in this world, you're guilty. And so am I. But the beautiful thing is because Jesus died for our sins, he can now look at you and me and say, you are not guilty. I've paid for that. So what are you going to do with that freedom that you've been given? Are you going to continue in sin so that my grace will continue to be poured out in your life? Or you turn to me to get victory over this sin. So I don't give a lot of practical steps. How do we do this? So I'm going to look at Nehemiah, and I want to look at Jesus. How, how, can we, how can we fight this? How can we do this together? One is, hey, this is a community. Let's keep each other accountable. One of the hardest things, I think, it's one thing to stop yourself from gossiping. It's really hard to stop another friend from gossiping. That's just an awkward situation. Let's look at what happens here, right? What do both Nehemiah and Jesus do? One, they pray, right? Pray like Nehemiah. He's standing before Xerxes, and he prays to, our, to God, and he doesn't even give any words. I prayed to the Father, and then I answered the king. When someone does something that's, I don't know what to do, pray, and then give an answer. And what could the answer be? I think we pray, and then two, we go to that person directly. That's what we're called to do, and it's awkward, and it's hard, it's what we're called to do. And again, they might not even know that they hurt you. We go to that person. And so what if, what if the person that someone else is talking to me, encourage them to go talk to that person? Say, I, I don't need to know all the details here, but if that person's really done that to you, I, I think you should go and talk to them about it, right? Maybe they don't even realize they hurt you in that way. And then finally, the hardest part is forgive. Whether you've been the recipient of gossip 
Forgive like Jesus. And what that means is you're gonna take and bear the weight of their sin against you. You're saying, I'm not gonna hold that against you. I'm gonna bear that weight. I, I say that at every single wedding that I do. I do. You've gotta bear that weight of the wrong that they've done, just like Jesus has done for you over and over and over. And then finally, you have said it. I don't know what it is about that phrase of you've, you've, you've said it. You've said it in your heart. You know, you know this to be true. And I think there are people in this room that know who Jesus is and they're not willing to admit it. You've said it. I think the Spirit's worked in your heart, worked in your life to say, maybe today is the day that I bend the knee to King Jesus. He, di he died for my sins so that I might have life. You've said it. And maybe we need to repent of just our unbelief. So we're going to enter into a time of communion like we do every week. And as we look at this sacrificial meal that Jesus established, I'm actually going to read a passage from Jesus that I skipped over right after Judas betrays him. And as we look at this meal that represents his body and his blood that was broken for us, I want us to remember these words from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 30, he says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it. There's something symbolic about tearing that bread. Unless you're gluten-free, you're allowed to just eat the cracker. You can, break, you can break that before eating. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're drinking and eating today. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As he sits on his throne, that someday right, Jesus is sitting around waiting to have a glass of wine with us. And when they had sung a hymn, which we're going to do, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so we will take, we will eat, and we will sing hymns, and then we're going to go. We're going to go to our prospective places in our towns and our, our neighborhoods and our families. And I want us to go with this in mind, to be like Jesus. Will you bow your head and will you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for, I thank you for Nehemiah. I just, I just thank you how as we, as we go through some really obscure passages in the Old Testament, some of which that many of us probably have never even read before, that there are just so many times where it goes, hey, look at Jesus. This is a great story about Nehemiah, a good and great man who once lived and was a prophet and a leader of Israel. But everything that that man did said, I am not the one. That someone greater is coming. And so God, would we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so God, would you not be glorified in our prayers and our confession of sin and our singing of these hymns and even our going with that honor and glorify you today. For it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.